0: Hey, gang, I have a really exciting episode today. I interviewed Dana Stevens, who is the author of a new biography of Buster Keaton, which is called Cameraman. I really enjoyed the conversation, and I hope you will, too. Remember to rate, review, etc. Thanks. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Ari Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Dana Stevens. Dana, could you please introduce yourself?
1: Uh, sure. I'm the movie critic at Slate.com is my day job. And also I am like you, a podcast host. I host a couple of podcasts at Slate, the um, the Slate Culture Gab Fest, which I'm a co-host of for 15 years or so. Also one called the Slate Spoiler Special where we spoil current movies. And relevant to our conversation here, I'm the author of the new book, Cameraman. Uh, which is about Buster Keaton, as as we will get into. I'll, I'll read you the whole subtitle, and we can talk about my my hesitancies about the subtitle, which I didn't <laughs> choose. It's a cameraman title I love, and then the subtitle: Buster Keaton, the Dawn of Cinema, and the Invention of the 20th Century. I think that actually actually captures what the book is about. Well, it's just it's so long and unwieldy, and I really really wanted a shorter and more elegant subtitle. But the publisher's idea was, you know, when people pick up a book, they want to understand from the cover exactly what it's about, which makes sense
0: right and this is not a conventional biography it's more of a biography slash cultural history slash other stuff as well i think and so i guess that the subtitle gets at that but i just want to before we launch into the book which is what we're mainly gonna be talking about um i just want to say how excited i am to speak to you uh slate culture Gap fest was definitely one of the first podcasts i ever listened to and i'm sure the first like culture cultural analysis podcast i ever listened to so you're know, like i doubt this show would exist without your show um so
1: oh that's nice to hear well i mean it was one of the first ones that there was to listen to in the right. world so back when it came out there was obviously a much slimmer menu of podcasts to choose from than there are now so i'm i'm honored that you're still listening if you are
0: i yeah i am i, I still tune in it's a great um it, it's a great show and yeah this i think my show definitely like is in the family tree a descendant of of slate like, culture Gabfest. fest Um. Okay. So, cameraman Buster Keaton, the dawn of cinema, and the invention of the 20th century. Um. Let's talk about that subtitle. Is is it just the length you don't like, or, I mean, the invention of the 20th century is 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 a bold claim, you know, to put in a subtitle. Can you talk about the conception of the book and also its status as not a straight biography, but cultural history and other stuff as well?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think maybe maybe my hesitation about the subtitle in a way has to do with the fact that. While accurate, it is pretentious sounding, which maybe means that what the book takes on is too much to take on. But that the invention of the 20th century is a fairly accurate summary of what I was trying to do in putting this book together. I think maybe it's the three-partedness of the of the (laughs) subtitle or something. Something about it sounds like, wow, she really bit off more than she could chew, which maybe I did. Um, But the invention of the 20th century is in fact for one thing, meant to be a play on words, in that you know this book is about how Keaton's art and life were a part of 20th century history, and on a grander scale, but also about the invention, the technological invention of the 20th century, which you know in my book's argument is the film camera. Uh, so this book departs from the idea, which you can find in pretty much any Keaton biography, that he and cinema were born in the same year, which was 1895. Um, he's born in October of that year, and in December of that year is when the Lumiere brothers in Paris project motion pictures for the first time on a screen for an audience. So it's not the first time people have seen pictures move. Edison has made, you know, the the machine that you crank and you can peek into as a solo viewer and watch watch things move. But it's in 1895 that watching films becomes a public shared experience and cinema as we know it takes off. So that's always sort of celebrated as the the birthday of cinema. And so I, I was just, I became fascinated over the period of many years. I mean, I've only been writing this book for about the last five and a half or so, but I've been thinking and reading about Keaton for about 25. And, uh, and I was always obsessed with this idea that he was born along with the technology that, you know, he did so much later on in his life to help shape. And if you're born alongside something, that means you grow up alongside it too, which was doubly true for Keaton because he was a child star in vaudeville. So the entire time he was growing up, traveling with this family act, the Three Keatons, they were always on bills with movies. You know, I mean, vaudeville and film also kind of grew up together in, in those early days of film. And you would rarely go see a vaudeville show without some sort of film technology being on display. In the very early days, it would be almost the technology itself that people were more interested in, this brand new gadget, the motion picture camera but as Keaton grew older and grew into a teenager, you know, cinema was evolving and maturing too. So I try to track that in the book and then, in some chapters, uh, as we can talk about, I pull the camera out even further and talk about non-cinematic developments uh, that took place during his lifetime and, and how they intersected with his life and work. You know, developments in technology and law and just you know social science and all the different ways that the world changed in between 1895, the year he was born, and 1966, the year he died. Which, if you think about how much the world changed during those 70 years, it's it's quite an incredible period in history.
0: Yes. And and so, for example, you have a chapter that's about sort of the origins of child welfare, um, as it's understood in the modern sense, using Keaton's involvement in this, this family vaudeville act. And so he was sort of he was like a working child and the growth of the idea that like oh children shouldn't be working like in a factory or something or possibly also perfor- you know be forced to perform on stage and doing dangerous uh, routines and stunts and stuff um so the the book is very interesting in that it goes in these unusual directions or takes an aspect of Keaton's life, and yeah, pulls back um, to use the obvious uh, cinematic metaphor and give you like a short cultural history of, of various subjects, like yeah, like child welfare or you know, like the origins of film criticism in magazines and, and and stuff like that. So, why did you decide to to do the book in this way instead of just a more straightforward biography, like in chronological order, going going through a single life?
1: Well, you know, it's funny, it just so happens, and this was not at all intentional, although I knew it was happening while I was researching my book, but it so happens that in the spring of 2022, just a couple weeks after my book came out, a big doorstop traditional biography of Buster Keaton came out. So if you want to read that kind of soup to nuts coverage of, you know, his everything from his grandparents' genealogy to, you know— what he had for lunch in the commissary at MGM. There is this eight hundred page, extremely well researched book that I wish had existed while I was writing mine, because <laughs> there was not a, a there was not at the time a really dependable. I mean, they all have various good and bad points. The Keaton biographies that, that exist, but this new biography uh, by by James Curtis covers a lot of stuff that I would not have known about. It otherwise. So it would have been great to have as a research source, but that was never what I set out to do. I mean, for one thing, it's just really not my jam. you know. To read, (laughs) it certainly is. I love to read a well-researched showbiz biography, and I read countless ones to research this book, but I never wanted to write one. It always seemed like a very thankless task. it, It requires, obviously, incredible research skills and access and a great deal of dedication, and God bless the people who write those kind of biographies. But Ultimately, I'm a, I'm a critic, you know, I'm not a historian or a film historian, and I can only look at things through those kind of, you know, analytic lenses that I'm used to writing in as a film critic, and so it wasn't as if I decided to write a book on Keaton and then thought, Oh, what's a crazy twisty approach that I could use. It's more <laughs> like my fascination with him was always twisty and always went through those kind of lenses, you know? So for example, the example you used about, you know, child welfare law and, and so forth during his childhood at the turn of the century, turn of the 20th century. um, Yeah. When I, when I would read about his childhood or think about his childhood and wish that I could go back and see um, film, the three Keatons in, doing their act, which doesn't exist because no one ever recorded them. The questions that would obsess me all had to do with, you know, what it was like to be a child star at that time. What did it mean to be a working child and a really quite famous one in his case, because he really was a kind of prodigy of slapstick who catapulted his parents into a much higher rung of show business than they had been in previously. Um, You know, just what did it mean to be a child performer and a child star at that moment in history? And as it turns out, when you start reading about that period It meant a lot of really fascinating and conflicting and ambivalent things because at that moment, as you mentioned, I mean, the idea that, for example, child abuse was something that should be uh, legally regulated was relatively new. It was only about a generation older than Keaton was. The idea of compulsory education for children was relatively new. And in fact, he never spent a day in school. As I think you mentioned, the Keatons were constantly being pursued by all kinds of uh, authorities who were attempting to crack down on their act and other acts as well, but especially the three Keatons, because they were known for the extreme violence of their stage slapstick. So if you start looking into his childhood, you really start to ask a lot of questions about the history of childhood and, and how it started to change right around that time. So that frame was really obvious in my mind going in. I knew that I wanted to look at his childhood through that historical frame. Some of the frames... Uh, For further along in the book, sort of it it sort of unfolded as I was researching, basically. I mean, I was always sort of reading books that were a few um, decades ahead of whatever I was writing about and trying to figure out all right, well, when you think about his film career and, you know, those golden years of the silent film era, you know, when he was making his his greatest works, you know, what sort of frame story does that bring up? And for me, in a way, and this becomes very meta, but the frame story there was the film industry itself and, and how it was changing in that period from the from the teens to the 20s up until the coming in of sound. Um, so the, the whole book sort of proceeded by that logic. You know, I would take a period of his life and then just start reading about that time, you know, and, and mm-hmm. find... And it seemed like I would always be tugging on some thread that would lead me somewhere that I hadn't expected to go. So I just followed my curiosity, really.
0: Well, well, yeah, that's great. And you, it, it provides off ramps where it's. It seems like so you have a chapter about the origins of Alcoholics Anonymous, flowing out of Keaton's alcoholism, and this was something I knew almost nothing about. And it's sort of like, oh, well, I get a little bit here, and then if I, you know, if I want to learn more about that history, you know, there's. There's like a Wikipedia aspect to it where you, the reader can branch off into various areas and pursue other things that they didn't know much about if they want to. Okay, so let's talk more about that vaudeville act, because this was something I knew nothing about and knew almost nothing about the the world of vaudeville. Can you talk about how he, well, he was born into a performing family, um, but also his preternatural um, skills as a physical comedian, even as... A child and you use this metaphor as sort of a frame for the book of of him like flying through the air, like being thrown and then landing or crashing or something. Um, so it, there's no film extant of this performance, and so we don't know exactly what it was like. so' we're, I guess it's, it's fully relying on you know eyewitness accounts at the time, but it's it just seems crazy like the things he was doing as a child on the stage with with his family.
1: Yeah, I mean, the more you read about his childhood, the more the more obsessed you become about the fact that there isn't any way to see the footage of that act or of most vaudeville acts. In fact, you know, very few of them, even though film existed from 1895 on, nobody really thought to record those acts. You know, they were just part of theater and they were considered to be ephemeral and not really worth recording. Um, But from contemporary accounts at the time, it really does seem like their act was quite unusual, even among family acts in vaudeville, which were not uncommon. I mean, performing children were all over the place. That's part of why there was so much interest in in regulating them. Uh, But most of them, as Keaton himself talked about in interviews later in his life, tended to fall into these older, more Victorian categories of what kids on stage should be doing. You know, there were little Lord Fauntleroy kind of sweet little boy characters, a character that Keaton himself once to his mortification um, played in in Summerstock Theater when he was about 11 or so. Um, And there were, you know, innocent angelic Victorian girls. And then there were sort of sibling acts where the kids would come out lined up in order of height from tallest to shortest and do a dance together or something like that. I mean, there were a lot of acts that incorporated families uh, but they tended to do so in a more wholesome way than the Keaton's did. And the Keaton's act was in a way about child abuse. I mean, or about sort of the the difference between good and bad parenting. And um, apparently from, you know a lot of stage descriptions about it at the time one of the standard formats of the act although they would riff on it and and change it from evening to evening is that his father joe keaton who was a very tall you know pretty burly man and and keaton was always a small person an extra small child even as a child um so they had this size contrast and the the dad would come out and stand at the front of the stage holding forth with this kind of um, monologue about parenting and there would be a sort of dramatic irony building where he would be in the front of the stage saying, you know, it's so important to parent our children in a gentle way and we mustn't be too rough. We must love our children. Um, While in the background, Little Buster was doing some sort of mischief that would eventually catch his dad's attention and then his father would proceed to, you know, undermine everything he himself had just said by hurling his son around the stage. And that was the comic premise of the act, you know, but the kind of mayhem that it built to was what the audiences were there for and what they were excited about. And in a huge number of the um, you know, vaudeville bills and reviews describing this act, there'll be praise of, of how funny Buster is. And he becomes the star of the act from the time he's about six years old or so. He enters it at around five. But they will also be gasps of horror and disapproval at how violent and frightening the act is and how people don't understand how the child can be safe and how he can survive. And it just seems like the terror and the humor you know, were really braided together in a way for audiences that really, really fascinated me. And which is not really something that even goes away when Keaton is an adult performer on film, you know, and I've shown a lot of his films in the last few months since since this book came out to audiences. And, you know, they still play like gangbusters and people laugh and they love them. Uh, but there is also always an element of of real fear for him. You know, like, is he going to break his limbs? Is he going to survive this fall? And that's right. part of what makes the movies thrilling to watch as well. So I really get into that, you know, how he, and this I think was very particular to his psychology as well, um, always wanted to mine that thin line in between laughter and um, and thrills and horror.
0: So do you think that he was, as a child, he just did have sort of this preternatural physical skill of the dad would pick him up and like throw him into like a, a fake wall or maybe even a real wall or something, but he would bounce right back and do it in a stunt like clownish way. Like was he just somehow had this physical ability? Because he it, it, it seems like almost like a like elfin miraculous child or something. It's like he's doing doing these stunts that is like yeah shocking and scaring and amazing the crowds in a way that is I think it's sort of hard to understand in a contemporary setting where, you know, this would never be allowed with children to begin with. And if somehow there's like a live performance of this, it would all be done with fake stuff and it would be much, much more actually safe.
1: Right. Right. Well, I mean, just speaking of fake stuff, you know, it just, it it ended up being the case that he was a a stickler his whole life for not using any effects, you know, and very, very rarely did he ever use a stunt double once when he had to pole vault for a movie, he hired an Olympic pole vaulter to do it instead <laughs> because he said it would just take me too long to learn that skill. So he actually hired the guy who had just won the gold medal in the sport. But that's really the only time I can think of in his in his silent film career that he doubled himself. In fact, he often doubled other actors. You know, he would put on an extras costume to do a fall because he could do the fall that the other person couldn't do. But as for how he developed it as a child, I mean, I guess that's one of those nature nurture questions that you're never quite going to know, right? I mean, he was born into a performing family, but it wasn't a particularly skilled performing family. His parents were <laughs> barely getting by with it, with an act that his father himself admitted years later was just a, a, a poor act. You know, they really didn't have much on the ball. And who knows if they hadn't had that particular son, if they would have stayed in the entertainment business at all. Um But the act that Joe Keaton and Buster Keaton did together seems to be something that they they worked up together over a period of years. So, I mean, if you think of it that way, you know, he's been called, and I love this, this line, the, the, the Mozart of slapstick, right? So he did have this quality of, you know, being an exceptionally gifted physical comedian from the time he was a very small child. But if you think about it, Mozart was born into a very musical family, you know, Mm -hmm. his sister was a composer too, his father, you know, trained them both in music from an early age. So it may be, or Bach as well, right? I mean, these musical examples are popping to mind. But you know, also a great, irreplaceable genius, nobody else could write like Bach. But he was born into a, a musical family for generations before and after him. So, if you think of a kid who was both born with a special level of skill and also grows up in this milieu where you know traveling from town to town, watching vaudeville acts, as he himself described, he would you know imitate the things that he saw, so that he learned to. trick bicycle riding and wire walking and juggling and all these things that were just sort of around you know that he he picked up as he was growing up so i feel like there's a kind of a a combination of this miracle child you know vision that you're talking about which is certainly how he came across to audiences and you know just someone who was extremely skilled and observant and sort of absorbing the um the culture around him in a way that also when you think about it becomes um historical you know because I always think about this, that when he died in 1966, in a way, centuries of of circus tradition and vaudeville tradition and physical comedy skills sort of died with him, you know, because he had learned in his body so many things, these ancient arts that were, that used to have to be performed on a stage before film was invented and carried them with him, you know, through his film career and his whole life. So that was something that I always found remarkable about him that I wanted to try to document in the book, that he's sort of a brilliant stage performer from very early childhood who then seamlessly without really any steep learning curve in between becomes this brilliant filmmaker, you know, with a real sense of how to use a camera and use the technology and perform for a camera and all this stuff. And it really isn't until the mid 1930s, this moment you're talking about when he hits the skids and becomes an alcoholic and he's fired from MGM and has a really, really dark period for a few years in the middle of his life. It isn't until then that, you know, his upward trajectory was ever really interrupted.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, it's interesting, and I, maybe I didn't make that connection until right now, that he embodied this sort of ancient art of, like, clowning that, you know, probably there, there were people doing pratfalls in ancient Greece or something, but then became a master of this thoroughly modern technology that he was able to master extremely quickly.
1: Yeah, and then in a way he did it again, which I get into in the, in the last third of the book, because when television came along, you know, he became quite a figure on on, in 1950s and 60s, early television, you know, when television was still figuring out what it was going to be. So there were that makes two different times in his life that he transitions from one art form to another and seems to be at ease and to know what he's doing and to want to explore new things in all of those art forms. So, I mean, to me, I guess I find him a very inspiring figure because he seems like one of the greatest artists who didn't conceive of himself as an artist (laughs) that I can think of, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, he just, he was such a natural at expressing with his body and making people laugh and so driven to keep doing that. And yet he didn't really conceive of himself as a person who had uh, artistic ambitions or, you know, that he was trying to um, top himself or further his career in the way that someone like Chaplin did, for example, you know? I mean, it's not even a judgment call, it's just true. Chaplin thought of himself as an artist, wanted to be classed as an artist, you know, and um, and really consciously tried to reinvent himself in that way. Whereas I feel like Keaton was much more of a craftsman of physical comedy who we only now, you know, after his life is over, regard as one of the great American art makers.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I want to get back to the Chaplin, compare and contrast Chaplin versus Keaton, maybe a, a little bit later on. But so can you talk about how he ended up working in film and also maybe mention Fatty Arbuckle, Freddie Arbuckle's role in this, who was another name that I sort of knew. I knew there was some, there was like a sex, it was like Hollywood's first sex scandals, supposedly involved him, but what, like who he actually was and what role he played in, in early cinema.
1: Yeah. He gets a whole chapter in the book. Roscoe Arbuckle does, because I, I i felt that he's somebody for exactly the reasons you mentioned, who's been very under-recognized and undersung and also just really done a terrible disservice by history because that scandal that you refer to, you know, the the so-called Fatty Arbuckle scandal um, really had to do with a bunch of kangaroo trials, you know, um, the yellow journalist press, really William Randolph Hearst's papers in particular, you know, deciding to take down Hollywood with Arbuckle as one of the figures they were after. And, you know, all kinds of blackmail and perjury. And in fact, I won't get into every detail of the trial, but I mean, the, the young woman's death that he was being tried for, for manslaughter, uh, seems from all forensic records that have been handed down to us to have not been a violent death in the first place. She seems to have died from a pre-existing condition that she already had when she came to this admittedly very wild party that Arbuckle was throwing in a, in a hotel in San Francisco. And a bunch of stories were spun around this trial that to this day, seem vaguely to implicate him in all of these sordid sexual things when in fact it seems to be the case that he simply hosted a party at which a young girl with a pre-existing kidney condition got really drunk and you know eventually passed out and a few days later died Mm -hmm. um and again i won't get into every single story about what a kangaroo trial it was that that followed that or three kangaroo trials rather but what seems really obvious in retrospect is that this young and really talented filmmaker had his career destroyed because of a tragedy that, that had nothing to do with his own um, agency. So I wanted to get a little bit of a sense of who he was and to, to rescue him from those shadows. I mean, just for example, I think, you know, a few years ago in the, at the height of the, the me too movement, I would see these, these articles that sort of vaguely seem to implicate Arbuckle for something that even if you look at his, you know, Wikipedia page, speaking of Wikipedia, you can see (laughs) that he was, You know acquitted of and um and seems to have been completely unconnected with yeah that people don't go ahead
0: i think that was in my head somehow yeah when especially he was somehow paralleled with, with Weinstein as being like, from the beginning, you know, <laughs> there were, there were rapacious men in Hollywood. And maybe the fact that he was called Fatty somehow was also like a parallel to Weinstein or something, but I, maybe that was the first time I'd ever heard of him beyond just that he had this funny name. But, but yeah. You... Well, that's the
1: reason, that's a reason too, that I go, I go out of my way to call him Roscoe in the book because <laughs> nobody that he knew called him Fatty. That was his character name, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and something that I think he never chose in the first place. And, you know, by the, I guess, sort of ethical standards of the jazz age it was not considered particularly hurtful but it was not something that he liked to be called in his everyday life and the fact that he is not only misremembered as having been a sex criminal and murderer but is misremembered as you know by this name that he himself regarded as derogatory and demeaning it just it it makes me too sad and he um to connect it back to keaton if you're asking why is she going on and on about roscoe arbuckle and his his sex trial is that he was Keaton's mentor in the movies. So in 1917, which is the year that Keaton leaves the stage and starts his career in film, uh, it was with Arbuckle Studio that he first started working, and um, and he and Arbuckle became almost immediately became co-directors essentially of these short comedies they were turning out together, and also best friends. They were very close in real life as well, and in fact Keaton wanted to testify on Arbuckle's behalf at his trial, and was advised not to by his own lawyers, I think, because they realized how quickly you know anyone connected with arbuckle was probably going to suffer their own um you know taking down in the press
0: Mm -hmm. and so how did keaton like emerge to be a figure who was kind of doing his own thing as like you know in front of the camera behind the camera um from a talented vaudeville person to someone who was who was making movies How how did that happen
1: I mean, I can tell you about the facts of how it happened, but again, as when we were speaking of his childhood, it's a bit of a mystery exactly how he made that transition so incredibly smoothly. You know, I mean, from the way he describes it, and Arbuckle kind of backed this up as well, from his very first day at the Arbuckle studio when he was initially supposed to be just observing, you know, he went in to observe because he was a stage guy who had never seen a film being made and was curious. He winds up playing a small role in in that movie, The Butcher Boy from 1917. And it was sort of, you know, love at first sight between him and the camera. And the way that the story goes is that he asked Arbuckle that day if he could take the camera, the camera they were filming with, back to his boarding house, the place he was staying, and take it apart. Because he was always a mechanically minded guy, Keaton was, and he was interested in how the machinery worked. And so from that very first day, he was interested in how to marry, you know, technology and and what was happening in front of the camera, the comedy, Uh, something that Arbuckle said about him that I love that I wish I'd put this quote in the book, but I somehow couldn't find a place for it was that he lived inside the camera, you know, that Keaton lived inside the camera. And that's really borne out, I think, by how immediately he seems to have been curious about doing tricks with the camera, you know, things like um, superimposition and masking the lens so that you can double an image and things that were pretty new at the time and had certainly not been done to a very sophisticated degree. And, you know, he wanted to push all those things as far as he could and figure out what to do with them. And he was not somebody who wanted to plonk the camera down and just do an act in front of it. (laughs) You know, he always wanted to be speaking through the technology as well.
0: Mm -hmm. So something that I didn't realize about the silent era versus the talkie, the sound era, was that things were were shot in a very different way because there wasn't any sound, obviously. And correct me if I'm getting into this wrong, but like you could just sort of like film much more easily like on a public street or something because you didn't need total silence and any commotion would not actually appear there. So a lot of the very early stuff, you know, before there were sound stages, or any or any sort of like facsimile of of reality to appear on screen like they really were doing these things in like real places and then uh or filming with sound required more like of a like a hermetic kind of um style behind the camera so that things wouldn't get messed up in and that so that the, the silent era it had like a verisimilitude in a way Does, is it is this accurate
1: Yeah, that's that's a pretty good summary of it. I mean, the way that I put it in the book is sort of that the period when Keaton was coming up, you know, like he was basically making the films that he wanted to make between 1917 when he started with Arbuckle and around 1927-28 when he made his last independent film with his own studio, the Buster Keaton studio that he had by then. And What really characterizes that period is what I call mom and pop filmmaking. Or for Keaton, it was really more brother-in-law and brother-in-law filmmaking because his producer, Joe Skank, was also his brother-in-law. But the point is, it was sort of a small family business, you know, and Keaton had a dedicated crew, which is something that disappeared in in the studio era. In other words, he could just show up at the Buster Keaton studio every day and his cameraman was there, his prop man was there, you know, his costume person was there. And this small crew of people were just waiting to, you know, execute his vision. Um, so they were people who understood his sense of humor, <laughs> who had worked with him before, and who were really just a very light and mobile crew who could, you know, move around the city. And as you say, you know, before sound came along, there's no need for microphones, obviously. There's no need, therefore, for enclosed walls to keep uh, outside sounds out. And, um, and for bright lights, because you've got those big walls, so, you know, where are you getting your light from? And that was something I hadn't really realized until researching the sound era for that part of the book that's about the switchover is that, you know, the coming of sound was just this huge act of violence upon the the film industry as it existed at that time. You know, it wasn't just that some people's careers ended or changed because of their voices, which is kind of the common singing in the rain generated myth Mm -hmm. about that switchover. It really is that the whole economics and physical geography and everything about filmmaking Radically changed overnight, and also film distribution and film viewing, because theaters needed to be wired for sound. You know, um, and suddenly whole jobs like being a the member of an orchestra, you know, that accompanied silent films, whole job areas were disappearing. And you know, it really was a very radical period of change uh, during that time. So Keaton's life was, you know, overturned by it, but so were lots of other lives, and so was the industry in general.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, if if someone has never seen a Buster Keaton film before, and they're interested in watching one or two, what what would you say is a good introduction, or or should even someone start with one of the feature length films, or should you start with some shorts? What if someone has no contact with the That's work? That's a good
1: question. I mean, I've had to, I've programmed a few different Keaton evenings since this book came out, and and I've tried to address different approaches to that question. I guess it sort of depends, you know, are you the type who wants to be a completist and be chronological? I mean, it would only take you about a week to watch every silent film he ever made, right? Because silent films are not very long. Um, He has a relatively limited filmography. So you kind of can't go wrong if it's a silent movie and Buster Keaton is in it. It's going to be good. Mm -hmm. But I would say for the features, what's a good starting point? I mean, my favorite buster keaton feature probably is steamboat bill jr um which is his last independently produced feature i'm not sure that's the best one to start with just because part of what makes it wonderful is to see the way he incorporates you know themes that have been obsessing him his whole career and the way it's to me is some, something of a culmination of the keaton aesthetic but you can't go wrong with that one it's very crowd pleasing if you want to start with a really short one this movie's ba- barely over an hour and it's brilliant sherlock jr is the movie where he famously climbs into the Screen, you know, you may have seen that effect where he um, climbs into the screen of a movie in progress and starts intervening in the in the action, and and that's you know a trick shot that's brilliantly carried off, and just just kind of meditation on cinema itself. That's that's a great starting point. Also has some unbelievable stunts and chases, and just some of his best physical comedy in it. I mean, The General is often cited as his his masterpiece and is probably the most likely Keaton movie to end up on lists of the greatest of all time or be screened in retrospectives and things like that. And The General is indisputably a great film and one that only he could have made. I'm not sure it's the best starting point, though, because it's not, nor does it set out to be his funniest movie. You know, I think it's a little bit more about the stunts and the props and the incredible, you know, use of trains and the action. It's, it's a pretty astounding piece of filmmaking, but maybe not the thing that would make you fall in love with him uh, the way those other two would. Then one more option, since I'm giving you the long answer to your question, <laughs> right. Aria, is, um, is that you could do some shorts, which are the things that are the least seen and really some of his greatest, greatest movies. So, you know, before comedy features came along and started to be more common around 1920 comedy was all shorts right I mean almost all Chaplin's early films were these little 20 minute two reel shorts that you would see before the feature film and that format really allows for a lot of goofiness and spontaneity and improvisation and absurdity and things that you wouldn't try to do in a a feature-length film that's trying to tell a more narrative story so um, for example a movie that, that I have a whole chapter about in the book one week which I don't know if you watched that in the course of reading, but One Week really is, I think, one of the great, great American comedies. And it's only 20 minutes long. It's a love story, you know, it's a romantic comedy. It's got some incredible prop work and stunts in it. And it's a place where you can see the very young Keaton, it's made in 1920, so he's about he's about 25, and he's just starting his, his own independent studio. Um, you can really see his imagination at work, you know, and him dreaming up things that only he could have thought of. So. Yeah, I would say if you're going to go with the shorts, I would watch One Week and I would watch Cops. And once you've seen One Week in Cops, you're going to want to see more. And <laughs> it's also worth noting that almost all these movies are streaming for free, either on YouTube or on archive.org. So if you want to go the route of like watching them on a beautiful Blu-ray with beautiful extras and incredible restoration music, that's great. Um, I couldn't be more in favor of, of physical media. But if you just want to get started on keaton you can dive in for free you know anywhere and any
0: yeah and so one week is that the one where they build a house
1: exactly yeah so the, the the premise of it um and this is the one that gets a whole chapter because it brings to me up so many questions about you know the real estate boom of the 1920s and all this stuff about housing practices at the time but it's about he and his bride getting a home kit a sears style it's not sears in the movie but sears used to sell them you know, a, a kit home that arrives in a box with all the lumber, all the nails and instructions for how to put it together, which was kind of a craze at the time. And so it's both a parody of that, you know, sort of a spoof of that of that craze for um home kit building. And also, I think just a wonderful parable about marriage, right? Because it's <laughs> it's this idea that he and his bride are putting together the home all on their own. And um, of course, they make a horrible hash of it and the home comes out looking like this this crazy um, cabinet of Dr. Caligari, you know, box. And it's just all about that, essentially, sort of. um, I mean, it's essentially Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan in the money pit, right? They had to have been thinking about um, one week when they when they made Uh that movie, another movie about, you know, a couple hopelessly struggling with a house that seems determined to fall into a pile of pieces of lumber.
0: So before reading the book, I think the only full Keaton movie I'd seen was The General. I I mentioned this to you when we were setting this up and I saw it on the big screen at the Dryden Theater at the Eastman Museum in Rochester, New York, and had live accompaniment. Uh,
1: I'm jealous. I've always wanted to see something at the Eastman Theater.
0: Yeah. And it was the guy who was doing the accompaniment was doing like improvising it as far as I can recall you know improvising the entire thing basically like he was a virtuoso of uh, a incredible. piano playing um so it was quite something and i guess sort of a unique like that experience could be replicated because the guy was making up the the music on the fly and so as, I, as a
1: pianist probably would have been doing back in the day you know right. most more than likely
0: and so the the general has a um spectacular shot action scene that i guess was the most expensive um <laughs> in mean, the history of early Hollywood of an actual train crashing off a bridge. But before I had seen that, I think I didn't really like. maybe I'd seen one or two actual silent films before, but I probably didn't really know anything about Keaton at all. And probably in my mind, I couldn't have like told apart like Keaton and Chaplin. Um, I knew that there was one guy that had a mustache and like a bowler hat. And, and whereas Keaton was more, abstract to be like I knew who, that there was such a person but at least for me he he wasn't an icon the way Chaplin's Little Tramp was. So could you talk a little bit about Chaplin not versus but compared to Keaton and maybe is it unusual that I you know didn't know the difference between them or or why did why is Chaplin somehow still like an icon whereas maybe Keaton is is less of one does that does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's not at all unusual that you had that experience of mixing up the two. And in fact, over the years that I've been writing this book, when I would tell people at a cocktail party or whatever, yeah, I'm writing this book on Buster Keaton, they would very often confuse the two and say something like, oh, I love that scene where he eats his shoe, you know, which is something (laughs) that Chaplin does in the gold rush, right? Um, The moment that he's starving and so he cooks his own boot and eats Mm -hmm. it. Or, um, or people would say, oh yeah, Buster Keaton, I love that scene where he's hanging from the clock face, which is Harold Lloyd, You know, another great silent comedian of the time who in Safety Last has that stunt of hanging from a clock face. So I think that it is not uncommon, given that you know, silent film is, even for cinephiles, often not a big part of the conversation about film history, that all silent film becomes this vague blur of, oh yeah, that funny guy doing funny stuff in black and white. When of course, at the time, It was not only the three of them, but, you know, lots of other very distinctive um, comedians doing their own shticks and their own things. So, yeah, I think that is just a a casualty of film history not being told in a very full way. And that makes me glad this book exists, because I hope Mm -hmm. that, you know, there'll be a a generation of people that will maybe go to the trouble of making that distinction and explore not just Keaton, but, you know, other, other films from that time. So, yes, not unusual in that sense at all. And as for Keaton versus Chaplin, I mean, I get into this late in the book because I have one whole chapter about Limelight, which was the 1952 Chaplin comedy that was the first and only time that the two ever appeared together on film. So, you know, after both having been pretty much at the same time superstars in the silent comedy world, they had never appeared on a stage or in front of a camera together, nor would there have been any reason for them to really because as I write about a bit in the book, I mean, Chaplin was incomparably more famous and richer than Keaton or any other silent comedian at the time and was in a, just a whole different level of fame. And I think a lot of that again has to do with history and you need to pull the camera out a little bit to look at why. So the moment when what was then called Chaplinitis hit the world, which is around 1915, 16, it's when Chaplin begins making his own, you know, self-produced independent short movies and becomes a huge worldwide phenomenon there kind of wasn't any such thing as a movie star or there was just starting to be. I suppose that you could say at that point that there were a few women, for example, Mary Pickford was becoming a big movie star. Mm -hmm. Um, But up until around 1910 or 1911, and this is an incredible fact that I didn't know until I started researching the book, movie actors weren't credited. You know, producers didn't put their names up before Uh the movie uh, on purpose because they wanted to. Um, keep the actors from trying to get higher salaries. You know, they wanted to make it about the movie and the technology, and not the star. And there was just this idea that, well, and also some actors didn't want to be associated with the movies because it was considered a a less a, a, a lower form. You know, than being a stage actor. So, um, you know, there were many many actors who didn't want to be known for for appearing in front of a camera. Mm-hmm. So until this shift occurred around 1910 1911, when you know actors started to be named, if you were interested in a movie star, you would know them as things like the Biograph Girl, you know, which is what um, Mary Pickford was called when she was with Biograph before her her credit was put up on screen. Yeah. And people would write into film magazines, which I talk about in the book, you know, trying to find out the identity of the Biograph Girl or whoever their, their crush on screen was, you know. So Chaplin's fame comes along at exactly the moment that that has been reversed, you know, that the name above the title is starting to be a thing. And that kind of fame itself at that scale is being invented. And also, of course, remember, if it's a silent movie, it plays in every country, right? So something that made Chaplin extremely popular worldwide is that you could understand him and the essence of his humor, whether you were an English speaker or not, right? Mm -hmm. So he really, I think, was probably one of the first people in the world who was known worldwide, you know, this kind of iconic figure, the tramp that everybody could identify. And... If only just because he came along a little bit later, you know, just a couple of years later into the movies, Keaton is entering a world where there are already movie stars, including Roscoe Arbuckle, you know, who was not as famous as Chaplin, but also a big worldwide phenomenon at that point. Mm -hmm. So also, of course, Chaplin was was a much better businessman than Keaton was. Um, He was much smarter about holding on to his intellectual property and, you know, investing his money and was not as kind of naive as a business person as as Keaton was so he was just much more able to control his career control his image and make the films that he wanted to make for longer, so that even after sound came along. When Keaton had sort of been essentially sold as a property to MGM and become a contract player there, Chaplin still had his own studio, he was still making silent movies in the 1930s the mid 1930s when that was a very odd thing to be doing because sound had basically taken over everywhere so. They're very different in, in that sense, right? I mean, they have very, very different career trajectories, but this moment when they come together in limelight was a really fascinating one to research because it would have seemed at that moment that Chaplin had everything going for him, right? That he was this incredibly wealthy worldwide superstar who could make any kind of film he wanted. Whereas Keaton was still, well, I guess he had by then sort of clawed his way out of his very dark years, but he was no longer you know, a, a big figure in Hollywood, although he was starting to become big on television. And yet, and I won't give it away because you have to read the book to see exactly why, it turned out that their careers were crisscrossing in exactly the opposite directions at that Mm -hmm. moment. Chaplin was just about to get booted out of the country, you could say, or boot himself out of the country because of his political affiliations and his many sex scandals, et cetera. Whereas Keaton with the coming of television was just starting to re-enter into the public eye. So there's this odd moment where the two of them perform this clown act together, you know, and they're seen together in, in limelight. And um, and their lives go in completely unexpected directions after that. And um, Chaplin leaves the country, only ever makes two more films, both of which are terribly received, and spends the rest of his life somewhat in decline, although, you know, extremely wealthy and comfortably ensconced in Switzerland. whereas, Keaton is back on the boards again, you know, doing circus work, doing summer stock, appearing on television, um, being in a Samuel Beckett movie, which we can talk about if you want to.
0: And, <laughs> yes, uh, and one, having this that really was odd. Bizarre. I'd never heard anything about that before. Yeah,
1: yeah. I want to talk about that. But yeah, <laughs> the idea is that like Keaton had this very unexpected kind of third act resurgence. And uh, so to the extent that I talk about Chaplin versus Keaton, I talk about it in the context of, of Limelight.
0: Yeah, which is a film that I have I've not seen, and I think you're maybe somewhat ambivalent on whether it's a good movie or not, but it's an interesting film to see. So I do want to ask about the decision that Keaton made, this bad business decision to sign with MGM, and how that was sort of like the disastrous decision of, of his professional career, and that was a turning point. And so he really had this very brief span as doing great work, and then there, there's a very obvious decision. And after that, it's a long period of decline.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, to call it a decision is, is somewhat misleading because of the things we were talking about earlier having to do with, you know, how much the industry was changing with the arrival of sound. He, he himself called it the worst mistake of my life, signing with MGM in his in his autobiography. But it, in a way, was something that he had sort of been backed into a corner and didn't have a lot of other options. Because as we were talking about, that mom and pop model of filmmaking was kind of disappearing. You know, in fact, his brother-in-law, Joe Skink, who had been producing his films for about 10 years, was getting out of the production business entirely and going on to, you know, becoming an executive at United Artists. And the entire system in Hollywood was just very rapidly congealing into this big classic studio system. You know, the golden age studio system that we think about with the big six, as they called them, whatever they all were, Paramount, Universal, Warner Brothers, RKO, et cetera. It was you were with one of those. Or you weren't in business at all, you know, and unless you were someone like Chaplin who was independently wealthy and able to keep his own studio afloat out of his own pocket. You kind of had to go with a big studio if you were going to keep making films. So there was a sense in which Keaton was sort of handed off to MGM by his by his brother in law and didn't have a lot of, of choice in the matter. But what happened once he got there was a mixture, I think, of economic necessity and just the way the industry was working and also Keaton's own, you know, personal struggles and personal failings, because it so happens that that shift over to MGM comes at a moment when his marriage, his first marriage is crumbling. He's starting to drink way too much. And as he loses creative control, he gets more and more depressed about it because when we've talked about his life up until then, I mean, whatever else you can say about the first, you know, 30 years of his life or so. He was artistically very um satisfied and accomplished i think you know he was somebody who in a professional way was able to achieve the things that he envisioned um and and make things around him happen the way that he wanted them to happen and so to suddenly hit this wall and be in this huge studio where he was essentially an animal in a cage you know and he i think he felt that metaphor very literally um in fact his bungalow at mgm though his dressing room had a sign outside that I write about that says Keaton's kennel, you know, the idea being both that he had a big dog at the time, a German shepherd that would come to work with him. So it was a kennel in that sense, but also that he was kind of a mascot at the studio, you know, that he was a domesticated animal and he just did not belong in that role at all and really rebelled against it. So for the first time in his life, he started to act out, you know, show up drunk on set, be the problem actor that um that LB Mayer, the head of MGM, you know, was was always looking to get rid of. And uh he just he kind of doomed himself there.
0: Yes. And there's a moment involving the dog. There's the the thing with the dog where the wife or the whoever was like gave the dog away or, or like released it. I, that was, I was like, <laughs> Oh, wow. it's so
1: tragic. It's so tragic. <laughs> That's My mom cruel... texted me when she was reading the book and said, I just, I can't go on. I can hardly turn the page after this dog story and I know. animals, it... animals were a huge part of Keaton's life. I mean, especially later in, in life, once he settled down with his third wife, you know, they kept chickens and they had St. Bernard's and she later bred St. Bernard's and he loved animals and he loved appearing on film with animals. There's quite a few great scenes that he does with you know, cows and dogs and uh, um, lions and various beasts. But yeah, the story of of his own his 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 own pet is all a part of that miserable period of of alcoholism and his disastrous second marriage in the middle of the book. The good thing to know, if you're stuck in the middle of the book and feeling really really sad for Buster Keaton, is that he <laughs> does find his way out of that. And in fact, contrary to I think a lot of legends and myths about him, the last half of his life I think was was really quite happy. You know, he may not have ever had that degree of creative control again, and it is sad that he never got to direct a feature film again after what, I mean, 1928 or so. But but he was doing things. He was making people laugh and he was working and he was out there doing stuff that he wanted to do. So I don't feel miserable when I when I think about the end of his life at all. I think he found a good a good place for himself and he did a lot of good work.
0: Yes, and you know, the period of uh where he was abusing alcohol and the i mean which you we mentioned before as you talk about the origins of aa uh in that period uh, of how you know he did not do that because it barely existed but he was able to turn his life around uh, and he did not abuse alcohol to, to the extent he did during those years ever again and so so do you want to talk briefly about that samuel beckett film that Sounds very unusual. And was it his last on-screen role or, or or how does that, what's the no, chronology of that? No, no.
1: Keaton, Keaton's last role, no, it wasn't. But it wasn't the last couple years of his life. He made that movie in 1964 with Samuel Beckett and he died in 1966. And in the time after that, you know, he did plenty of guest appearances and things and he did some shorts okay. and things like that. Um, but yeah, it was it was certainly one of the later things in his life and one of the last high profile things that he did and the the way that that came about the story of of how that came about i think once again opens out onto other bigger interesting questions about the 20th century and about that moment in in entertainment because you know keaton is in a way the last person that you would think of as being part of the avant-garde right as i said earlier he did not conceive of himself at all as an artist you know he was not a, a word guy uh he was not a book guy he seems to have not done much reading at all outside of reading the newspaper and the sports pages and maybe, you know, the, the entertainment trade papers or something like that. So he would not have been somebody who particularly cared that, you know, the greatest playwright of modernism was asking him to be in his first and only film. And this is the only Beckett did not direct this film, but he wrote the screenplay for it. And it was the only, besides something made for television, only film that he ever was part of. Um, But but when you look at it from Beckett's side, it seems completely logical why he would ask Buster Keaton to to play the lead role in his one and only movie, because Beckett had grown up watching the silent comedians, you know, he was a generation younger. So, you know, loving them as a child, watching silent films in Ireland. And if you think about, you know, the classic Beckett play, Waiting for Godot, um, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of of. Chaplin-esque and Keaton-esque action in that that show. It's all about, you know, these two bums, these two tramps who are taking off their hats and shoes and, you know, mixing up each other's props. And it's full of physical comedy. It's full of that kind of absurd and kind of melancholy comedy that both Keaton and Chaplin specialized in. And it makes all the sense in the world because it's really a piece for, for clowns, you know, that, that Keaton would be asked to participate in that. And in fact, when Waiting for Godot was first produced in the United States, you know, the very first production is in France and it's a big hit there. And then as they're bringing it over to the U S and Beckett translates it into English, they tried to cast Keaton in the very first American production, um, which was in, in Florida. And, uh, And he refused for for the very simple reason that his wife, Eleanor, his third wife, usually screened scripts for him because he wasn't a big book guy. She would do the reading and they would talk about it and she would tell him whether she thought it was worthwhile. So she reads Waiting for Godot and says, I have no idea what this book is about. (laughs) This is nonsense. And so they just kind of shrugged and said no to the project. But that was probably about 10 years before, you know, Beckett then comes to him again and says, OK, now I'm making this film. You know, do you want to work on this film with me? And why exactly Keaton said yes is not quite clear. I I think once again that he couldn't really make head or tail of the script, but it was less of a commitment than being in a play. You know, um, he probably welcomed the chance to have any work at all. It was filmed in New York, which was a place he liked to travel to and work in. And so even though the history of the making of this movie, which is called just film, seems horribly grueling. And, you know, the stories of what happened on the set on this, this hot summer day with this 69 year old man, you know, like running around doing all the physical comedy asked of him, it sounds utterly grueling. Um, And the result is not that artistically successful, but it's really, really fascinating to watch as an artifact and for Keaton's performance as well. And I would recommend, I mentioned this in the book, I think, but, If you are interested in film, which is very easy to find, Beckett's film, probably also streaming for free on YouTube, but certainly not hard to find streaming somewhere. I also recommend that you watch this documentary called Not Film, which is about it's a very odd sort of avant garde in itself documentary about the making of film. And so it gets it really gets into all this history that I'm talking about, how Keaton got invited to participate, you know, who the cameraman was. He was legendary, too. Um, you know what the conditions were like on set what the reception was like when it started playing at film festivals and things and everyone was just scratching their heads saying what the hell is this. Um, but pe- people loved Keaton in it. And, uh, and the story I tell in the book which I find very moving is that when film the Beckett movie finally premiered at the Venice Film Festival. It ended up being in 1965 only a few months before Keaton would die of, of lung cancer in early 1966. And Keaton traveled to Venice to introduce the movie, which he himself, you know, essentially kind of disowned, like, I don't know what this crazy movie is about. (laughs) Um, And it was received much more as a Keaton project than as a Beckett project. So even though it got pretty negative reviews and, you know, a head-scratching response from the audience, Keaton got a five-minute standing ovation when he appeared to introduce the movie and, you know, was in tears at the podium. And I think kind kind of was realizing at that moment, because it was at the same time that his films were starting to be restored and rediscovered and shown again, he didn't know he was dying because his wife never told him that he had cancer. But I think he knew at that moment, you know, I will be remembered. And it, it's, it's nice to know that he had that time, you know, that there was a moment before he died that he sort of realized like, I'm not going to be forgotten by history.
0: Um, Yeah, that, that is lovely. And that might be a good place to, to end this conversation. We've sort of, gone through the chronology but there's a lot more that we left out and people will have to buy the book if they want the full the full story but yeah there's you have a chapter on uh keaton and race and sort of the legacy of missile shows leading to vaudeville and early film and there's just a lot of interesting stuff in here that if you were like me, you know, a couple of years ago, who essentially I had no idea who who Buster Keaton was. I think, you know, reading this, you'll you'll learn a lot more about him, but also about all these other interesting cultural and historical stories that are are worth learning about. Um, is there anything else you want to say about the book before we wrap up?
1: I mean, not really. Just that I hope that if people are, you know, inter- interested from this conversation and decide to read the book that they know that yeah, what they're getting in for <laughs> is more of a critical study and a cultural history. You certainly will learn a lot about Keaton and his life and his work, you know. But it is it's not going to be an exhaustive chronological march through his life. It really is more of a kind of um, almost like a series of of essays connected to his life and work <laughs> that refract, you know, that that life and work through um, other trends events phenomena of, of his time so if you think of it as the history of a lifespan rather than the history of a life right it's the history of the years from 1895 to 1966 with this person as the focal point but not the sole subject
0: okay I, li- I like that a lot and you know cameraman he is yeah focal point or lens or something that we're using to look through at, at various other uh, things that happened Oh, I didn't
1: think of that meaning of cameraman. But yeah, it's kind <laughs> well, of that, true. He is yeah. he is also the camera itself, you know, not just the guy behind the camera, but the guy through whom we're looking at the world. Yeah.
0: Um, okay, so so Dana Stevens, thank you again for coming on. Like I said, I'm a I've been a fan of yours for years, so it's been a real treat to have you on my show. And people can find you at slate.com, the culture gabfest podcast. On Twitter, you are the high sign.
1: Yes, which is the title to a Buster Keaton short from 1920. Right. And that's my that's my handle on Instagram as well. The high sign is me.
0: Yeah. I, so I didn't know that. And then in the very in the like introduction to the book, you talk about how you first encountered him and seeing that the film was called the high sign. And suddenly like things clicked into place for me. Um as as someone who's who's been a fan of yours for a long time. Um yeah so Yeah, I had a few
1: people tell me that they never knew that was where my handle came from. They thought it was a reference to what a stoner I am, that I was always (laughs) high. (laughs) So I guarantee you it is not that it really is a Buster Keaton title.
0: Um yes. I don't know, I didn't Draw that conclusion. I'm not sure what I thought it was, but you know, there's just some of people who adopted Twitter early, some of them, and still have, you know, a somewhat obscure handle. That's sort of the a legacy of that earlier, more innocent period of social media. Yeah,
1: it would probably be better for my brand or whatever if I use my real name to be recognizable. But yeah, I'm the high sign and the high sign. I must stay.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, thank you for coming on. Thank you to all of our listeners. And uh, we'll see you again next time.
1: Thank you, Arya. That was such a pleasure. It was a good conversation.